Recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, this is The Poetry Project. Good evening. Uh, Welcome to The Poetry Project. My name is Ariel Goldberg. I'm the Friday night coordinator here, and I am beyond gratitude to be sharing this space with you tonight. Um, And I'm so thrilled to be hosting um, a special platform event called Giant Night, Artists Love Poets. Um, We're going to be hearing tonight from Shreshta Rit Premnath, Gordon Hall with Savannah Knoop, Sable Elise Smith, Jonas Mekis, Sunita Prasad, and Amy Silman. Let's give them all such a warm round of applause. So um, I am speechless, um, but we are here. Um, and I get so much strength from, from all of you here. And I hope that we can share this space together tonight. Um, and I would like to read some words of James Baldwin. About my interests. Oh, I should say this is from Notes of a Native Son. About my interests, I don't know if I have any, unless the morbid desire to own a 16 millimeter camera and make experimental movies can be so classified. Otherwise, I love to eat and drink. It's my melancholy conviction that I've scarcely ever had enough to eat. This is because it's impossible to eat enough if you're worried about the next meal. And I love to argue with people who do not disagree with me too profoundly. And I love to laugh. I do not like bohemia or bohemians. I do not like people whose principal aim is pleasure. And I do not like people who are earnest about anything. (laughs) I love America more than any other country in the world. And exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. I think all theories are suspect, and the finest principles may have to be modified or may even be pulverized by the demands of life, and that one must find, therefore, one's own moral center and move through the world hoping that this center will guide one all right. I consider that I have many responsibilities, but none greater than this, to last and to get my work done. So with that, um, I'd like to encourage everyone to grab a program on the way out. We have so many amazing events coming up in the coming weeks. and I'm going to now introduce the director of the Poetry Project, Stacey Samazic, who's going to tell us more about the beautiful portfolio of prints that we're celebrating here tonight. Stacey Samazic. Thank you, Ariel, for welcoming us into this space. Um, <clears throat> and thank you all for being here tonight. It's great to see a full, full parish hall, as always. Um, this was uh, or is one of the Poetry Project's special uh, 50th anniversary events. Uh, artists love poets, which implies also that poets love artists. 
Um, there's a long 50-year, in fact, tradition of this love, um, also known as uh, collaboration here at the project, which is perhaps partially inspired by uh, Frank O'Hara, particularly his poem, Why I Am Not a Painter. And I just wanted to share the first two lines where the particular painter being uh, addressed is Mike Goldberg. I am not a painter, I am a poet. Why? I think I would rather be a painter, but I am not. <laughs> this event honors artistic collaboration and at the sa same time announces an intention to keep nurturing it expansively going forward. It's an ethos that Ariel has so thoughtfully created with this Friday series. Um, I want to profoundly thank Alan Felsenthal and Ben Estes of the Song Cave uh, from, from, I mean, for having this idea, approaching me with the idea to do a 50th anniversary portfolio um, and donating their time and expertise and resources um, and co-sponsoring this evening with us. So thank you so much to the Song Cave. This would not have happened without them. <laughs> and we've been so deeply moved by the generosity of the artists, um, Amy Solman and Jonas Meckes, who are both here tonight. Thank you so much. And uh, Simone Forti, Mary Manning, and uh, Cecilia Vacuna, who could not be here. Um, the work is on view on the back table. Uh, I saw many people looking at it already. It's for sale. Um, a set is $1,000 and each print is $250. Uh, limited edition, signed and numbered by the artist. And they're selling really well. I think they're all going to be gone uh, in the next six months. So I hope that you consider purchasing them, at least look at them, enjoy them, and um, but also know that just your presence here tonight is an experience, is a great gift by myself and everyone working for the project tonight. So thank you. Um, Ariel, are you coming back up? Okay, Ariel's coming back up. Thank you very much. Please welcome Shreshta Rit Premnath. Hi everyone, and thanks so much to Ariel and the Poetry Project for um, having me. Um, I was going to apologize for my poems, but maybe I shouldn't. I'm an artist, forgive me. <laughs> I wrote these over the last two days. A place to park my palace. Megan tells me they have 12 houses, and each has a machine that irons bed sheets. You simply feed them in, and they come out flat. She's been palladium leafing the dressing room in their 740 Park Avenue apartment. She doesn't have work lined up for next week. I have art in similar houses, but not enough to afford a balcony in Brooklyn. Also, we have failed at growing herbs in our window planters. My gallerist was visiting the city and took us out to the mark for dinner. She complained all evening that the gallery was in trouble. I remember looking at Daniel Loeb's income on Forbes.com and calculating that he could pay off my student debt every five minutes. We laughed amongst ourselves as I continued rendering Paula's design for his Hamptons landscape. 
I've never seen the gardens I rendered, but enjoyed comparing my drawings with photos of the finished projects. I look at Zillow sometimes to see what apartments cost. Ben shouts over the studio wall, Rit, I'm gonna buy a building in Cleveland for pennies. He has said this weekly since 2006. <laughs> the old caretaker of my father's farm asked me, where is America and why do you live there? It's far away, I said, and I don't know why. The day after. Dear 72% of non-college educated white men, thank you for your overwhelming enthusiasm. I was following the polls, trace a mirrored line, dipping and rising in anticipation, but when you filled your circle, the statistician's needle shivered. You were the butt of our jokes, and we'd all but forgotten you, but our clown has returned, shouting his white rage with the tongue of a troll. Dear 62% of non-college educated white women, thank you for tossing a grenade in our basement. My ears are still ringing from the aftershock and I'm empty and sad, like there's been a death in the family. Dear 37% of white people and 74% of non-whites, this morning the city was silent and in the subway we couldn't bear to look at each other. I met a friend for breakfast and we talked about this agnosia, how everything is exactly the same but unrecognizable. Cheaply built on closer inspection like Mar-a-Lago. Dear overeducated friends, thank you for your persistent paranoia. As you know, the present is always Kali Yuga the last phase of this crumbling cosmic order, the bull of dharma has lost three legs and teeters precariously, hopping one-legged from calamity to calamity. Our angel of history zigzags. For you, nothing is good enough until something is much worse. And even then you blame your foreclosed possibility of that which will have been. Dear friends of various demographic categories, Thank you for being here tonight. I can't speak for you, but my emptiness is like a vacuum that sucks all things into its gloom. I think we were silent because we recognized it. It has always been there, a hole in the center. We were talking yesterday about how the art world is not for us, that we have always sensed an emptiness at its core, but we play along and service its white walls fighting one another for its fleeting attention, afraid we have already invested too much, afraid we would disappear if we withdrew, afraid that withdrawal is shameful, ashamed that our politics rarely extends to action, confused about the objects of our who our objects of our politics should be. But as the ground cracks beneath our feet, we suddenly feel an orientation, a sense of possibility in this quickly, quickly widening hole. Dear teachers, yesterday we realized that we know nothing, or at least that we must actively unlearn the knowledge that has stopped us from knowing. We were silent because we were ashamed that we didn't know each other. We said we must work together, 
but knew right away that the we we were talking about was an idea that cannot be learned, but must be made, and that none of us has the time to make it. I feel a sense of urgency, that this is a call to action, that we must try to capture and hold that feeling of the moment before we fall when our knees have begun to buckle, or the moment right after when the force of gravity orients us but we have not yet fallen. That feeling we felt the first night and the morning after, the soundlessness of that night and the hum in our ears searching, a silence enveloped in a distant ringing, every sound in its inverse, a listening, an ear for the mouthless, a being with that is a listening and looking, unlearning as directed possibility, a sensory orientation that stops the shuddering needle. We must make a new time of being with, a time of learning through unlearning and reorient this era of post-truth towards its looking for, towards its becoming by being with. Thank you so much, Rit. Um, let us now welcome Gordon Hall with Savannah Knoop. Hi, everyone. Um, I wrote down some really basic things I want to say because I'm having trouble keeping stuff in my brain. Um, the piece I'm sharing with you tonight is an older work of mine. It's actually the first thing I made when I moved to New York in 2012. Um, I'm going to be reading it to you with the help of Savannah Knoop, who was the person who performed this piece with me the first time, um, Just and we had just met at that time. Um, it was at the Movement Research Festival in 2012, and it was the first in a series of works that have continued since then in which I write performance scripts that use language that I find in text that I'm reading for other purposes, usually teaching or other kinds of writing. Um, this piece is built out of language found in three books. Um, the first is an anthropology book from 2009 called Ritual, Perspectives and Dimensions by Catherine Bell, which is actually an excellent book. Also, The Varieties of Religious Experience by William James, published in 1902, and the widely read 1986 essay by Foucault, Of Other Spaces, the one where he talks about heterotopias. The original piece, which was a performance, took place in the West Park Presbyterian Church, which is a massive church, and we turned off the lights so it was pitch black, and we had these big spotlights that we used as part of the performance, but tonight Savannah and I will just be reading the piece for you unaccompanied. Sorry. Illusions. Half-truths. Blindnesses. Rationalizations. The non-utilitarian nature of our activities. 
the style of our doing. Acts that do not encourage explaining. In an exact series. Self-control. Differentiation. Distinguishing this place from other places. Not only places, but objects, buildings, people, not the same as other beings. A quality of specialness. The object that is more than the sum of its parts. The object that points to something beyond itself. Rhythm. Repetition. Supernatural beings. The unification of past and future. Ignoring the passage of time altogether. The image. Object. Idea. Illusions. Half-truths. Blindnesses. Rationalizations. The non-utilitarian the non-utilitarian nature of our activities. The style of our doing. Acts that do not encourage explaining. In an exact series. Self-control. Differentiation. Distinguishing this place from other places. Not only places, but objects buildings, people, not the same as other beings, a quality of specialness, the object that is more than the sum of its parts. <laughs> the object that points to something beyond itself, rhythm, repetition, supernatural beings, the unification of past and future. Ignoring the passage of time altogether. The image. Object. Idea. A placeless place. I see myself where I am not. That space that opens up behind the surface. I am over there. A shadow. I come back toward myself. Reconstituting myself where I am. The space that I occupy. Absolutely real. And? Absolutely unreal. Passing through this virtual point. We do it every day. We have to. Over beliefs. Arranging these objects. With such care. And precision. You surround me like atmosphere, closer to me than my own breath. In you, I live and move. I stand in your presence and talk with you. It is strong, soothing, and hovers over me. We have a habitual sense of one another in the world. I feel your continuous being, you uninterruptedly affect me through and through and through and through. A placeless place, 
I see myself where I am not. That space that opens up behind the surface. I am over there, a shadow. I come back toward myself, reconstituting myself where I am. The space that I occupy, absolutely real and absolutely unreal. Passing through this virtual point. We do it every day. We have to. Over beliefs. Arranging these objects with such care and precision. You surround me like atmosphere. Closer to me than my own breath in you. I live and move. I stand in your presence and talk with you. It is strong, soothing, and hovers over me. We have a habitual sense of one another. In the world, I feel your continuous being. You uninterruptedly affect me through and through, 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 and through. Thank you so much, Gordon and Savannah. Uh, let's welcome Sable Elise Smith. Hi. Um, I'm going to read a text titled A Static Resilience. And so the party continues. Every night I dance to the triplet hi hat trap boy fantasy. A slow syrup oration deceptively similar to my code-swapped histories punctuated by an 808. Every night I dance to the sex-laced crescendo as bands make her dance, or the desire for another's body as the heart decelerates and drugs slowly seep out of the system. I only want you when I'm coming down, or fuck faces. There's a rhythm for everything. The party is about a moment of suspension, filling a rigorous sensation in the body a pulsating tip to tip like Paul B. Preciado's testo gel, the moment it seeps in is palpable, like pins and needles all prickly across the skin surface, and a slow numb that calls attention to each beat of the heart harder and harder. And the sensation conjured by this dance is void of history, geographic location, and pain. It's a sensation that is without my scars or muscle memory. It is without his trauma of domestic violence. It is without the memory of crack or our 80s birth. It is without those small deposits of rage. It is without, because even the sweat releases something from the body. Without, because we are giving everything, and to splurge is an act of depletion. I've listened to my peers recite remix versions of the names of the recent fallen lately. I've watched the faces and white spaces as the words leave lips. I moisten my lips to receive these names. I insert my own name at times, wondering the difference between me and them. I'm so moved by this murmur propping up each individual's performance or non-performance, 
propping up me as the energy in a space constricts and begins to envelop me and certain others in the audience. And I think about the camouflage of mourning and how space shapes itself around each of our bodies, pushing in a little more each time. This is a chance. This is a chance. <clears throat> the dance, however, is not a, an escape. It is a punctuation. It is about claiming an instant of time and something that can be mine completely, though at times I share it with others, as we are all our own orbiting planets spinning in excess in proximity to one another. And sometimes our bodies touch. Sometimes I run my shoulders up against his and there's a transfer, a silent affirmation. We are taking up space at the same time and spinning the most delicate webs out of the strongest material imaginable. This is the dance. This is the work of living between the distinct moment when we push past exhaustion to elation, a static resilience glittering down. I want to dance, slick with sweat and cum and saliva. I want to hold the body in a state of titillation rushed to its peak by the simple act of being alive, by taking a breath, by breathing. The club is a sanctuary for queer liberation. Audre Lorde writes, for those of us who live at the shorelines, standing upon the constant edges of decision, crucial and alone. For those of us who cannot indulge the passing dreams of choice, who love in doorways coming and going in the hours between dawns. In the beginning, they say, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the fiction continues. Being without form and void suggests a folding onto itself so that we may always be both negating the other. While the dance just holds us in, detaches our weight and gives us a small respite. It is a portal, a tiny dressing room to construct and sharpen our outfits, our attitudes, our swag, and presentation as we go out in the world and perform our positions in hopes to acquire or swap into other positions, permission to be amorphous. A woman I dated once was really attracted to my ability to slip. She put language to a fluidity that she identified in me. For her, my slippage to female was only visible when we fucked. Though in fucking, I oscillate back and forth in a way she did not find present as I walked through the world not fucking. And so I wonder about the rhythm of my walking. This walking through as opposed to being rested in. This pendulum sway from form to void. Funk music does not occupy a space separate from the sex and drugs. It is about a visceral manifestation of pleasure to negate the flaws detrimental. It is about sitting in a caprice on Slauson, slouch down in your seat real low, eyes low, blazed, two tens in your trunk, listening to Bootsy, to Parliament, to E-40, to Tupac, to Curtis, to the vibration in the seat that leaves a plush velvet fabric and enters the spine, the forearms, the ass. A form created in the 60s, resistance is embedded in its syncopation. Funk is about the journey. And sometimes just to be a body feeling is revolutionary. I think of James Brown sliding across Ed Sullivan's stage in 1966, both exclaiming and singing, I feel good. I think of the rapidity of his steps as an autonomous choreography that straddles a stark line between performance and refusal, an acknowledgement that at some point the ground will refuse to uphold. I see the ground buckling myself, and so we shake it. Shake it as vigorously as the earth shakes itself loose in California along certain fault lines in search of fluid space. Eddie Hazel lifts the gravity in one's room. He jams it into the chest cavity with one long note in E minor. 
A guitar solo played on top of itself echoes in the parts of us that have already been made hollow. Time stops. I imagine a callousness across the tips of his fingers, some hard shell of labor. Catharsis peaks with each well of the guitar and we float weightlessly deeper into the void. And maybe the body rattles like trunks when a deep bass vibrates through them. His language, his, sorry, his guitar bleeds all the language out of the lament. It festers in the body. It sits against the spine applying pressure. And I ponder that space between the moments where language falls away from sound or the moment that sound becomes language, dragging with it a weight that resides in the body, forcing us to confront it. The music is both thick and empty so that we may climb into it and be many selves at once, planted on tabletops, hips rocking back and forth, smiles slick across faces. Black joy is an act of resistance. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sable, and please welcome Jonas Mekas. Before I read, I would like to say something about the print that uh, I made for this occasion, the 50th anniversary. And that's a print uh, with Frank O'Hara, and uh, as he was known, is in 1957, Leroy Jones Baraka. Uh, it was taken, I took it during, actually it's uh, three frames from a film of that evening. There was a reading at the Living Theater, that we are now in 1957. And I thought it should be maybe it should be recorded on film. I, you know, I, I wanted to be a documentary, like a, uh, a film maker that records reality as it happens there. Important event for great contemporary poets reading at the Living Theater. So I took the first. Uh, uh, I sat in the first line. And I had, and there is Alan. He begins to read, and I, I point at Alan and press the button. And my camera was very noisy. It went <laughs> like <laughs> Alan tolerated me for like 15 seconds. Then said, stop that camera. Stop, stop filming. Stop that noise. I continued. But, but I gave, I couldn't, you know, I had to respect Alan and, and stopped. Now, uh, we are uh, 20, 30 years uh, uh, later, somewhere there, 25 years later. I screened my footage. And Alan was there. What, uh, it was uh, like I managed to get and then I filmed backstage, and uh, like uh, that's where the image comes from. And uh, I uh, had like maybe two minutes of footage. I screen it, and there is Alan, and just for 15 seconds, and Alan, 
just 15 seconds, why, why not, you should, you know, why not more? I said, Alan, but you stopped me, it was you who stopped me. Alan said, yes, but you should have continued, you should have ignored me. This is, you know, history, this is important. <laughs> so that was the occasion <laughs> of the origin, uh, history of that image that uh, is there. Once uh, there was a man, he lived, he worked, he ate, and he slept like everybody else. One day, I do not know how or why, he went to the Frick Gallery and stood in front of a painting by Vermeer. As he stood there, Watching the subtle play of light and color, he began to feel pleasant currents go through his whole being. Later, at home and at work, he could still feel Vermeer's presence. He felt a kind of electricity in the subtle and tiny ends of his senses, a current which went further into his thoughts and through his heart. He knew that something that had been atrophying and dying in him was suddenly given new life by Vermeer and he felt richer for it. He wasn't a shrinking man, he was expanding. All his life he was told that art and beauty were ephemeral and unreal. Now he knew that in actuality, both art and its workings were concrete and real. Vermeer had locked into his painting the energy, the subtle vibrations of light and line which can wake up and come into action as soon as there is a sign of any approaching frequency of vibration in the onlooker. And it lifts that lower vibration of the onlooker into its own field. Knowing this, the man now frequently visited the gallery to spend time with Vermeer. It was like going to school and learning and growing. Only the facts learned were not the facts of profession and craft but rather the facts of aesthetic sensibility. If in school he felt his thinking powers were strengthened and uh, the know-how facts were instilled into his memory, so here an entire area of his being 
that he didn't even know existed was strengthened and developed and now seemed to give meaning to the rest. He also understood now that the expression which he had heard so often in school and among his friends, that art is a reflection of life, now this expression had little meaning for him. Art was not a reflection of life. Art was life. Art was energy. Art was more life than he, than he was very often. <laughs> more soul was locked into this painting than into some of his friends. The separation was not between life and a reflection of life, but between the different phenomena. A man is one thing, a tree is another thing, a stone still another, and a painting by Vermeer still another. And each of the four was a field of energy, and they acted upon each other, and all four were life. As the years went by, while his visits to the Frick Gallery continued, he used to stop occasionally in the street in front of some artist selling his paintings, and he was always disappointed not to receive from them any of the feelings he got from Vermeer. A confusion of muddled tones seemed to come out of these amateur paintings, a vibration of a much heavier quality and frequency, which almost by force was pulling down his own frequency, dulling his senses, jarring with them, making him almost physically sick. And he had to rush away. He knew by now that the artifacts of man can act both ways. They can lift one up or they can drag one down, all depending on where the onlooker was in his own development and where the creator of the artifact, the artist, was when he was creating the artifact, where he was in his own development how pure, how clear an instrument he was himself, what kind of note could sound through him. Thank you. Thank you, Jonas. Please welcome Sunita Prasad. I have to say, as a filmmaker, it is really an honor and very humbling to follow Jonas Mikas. Um, but really, everyone who read tonight, um, it's really, really nice to be with all of you tonight. It's, I, it's been a very hard week, and I've felt it very personally. Um, and it's, it feels good to be in a space like this. I wish I had had the wherewithal in the past couple of days to uh, to write something that was relevant to the current moment. Actually, I really admire that you were able to do that. Um, I 
so this is really what, what I'm going to read is from from before that day. But um, it is a reflection on um, some things that I have learned and loved uh, from marginalized people, and in some cases, some lessons that I've learned regrettably late about participating in systems that marginalize people. So maybe it's still kind of relevant. Um, <laughs> There's a boulevard in Baltimore. It's the one with the Shell Station glaring next to the plaza with the Dollar Tree and the Marshalls and the cafe that keeps changing its name. You already know where the Wendy's is on this street and whether the next Squat Monopoly Motel over is a Burger King or a KFC, so that when a gap in the sequence occurs, it is like a bottom dropping out. All of the prefab brand-shaped buildings are up against the stream of cars. But this immense shape is set back, way back, from the boulevard. It has no cartoonish colors, no movable type signs reading Bogo Wednesday or All Beef Patties. It isn't floating in a box of super cranked halogen light, and in fact, it is very dim. The light that does glow from it is in a grid of perfect squares and very yellow, yellow in a way that suggests an excessive thickness to the glass. These iodine windows are all as blank as stairs and so uniform and so far from the road, like a major mistake has been made with the zoning here. Nothing sweet or salty ever beckoned from a window like that. And it turns out they are not all blank. One of the perfect yellow squares on the left end of the grid has a shadow in it. It's a smallish person with one hand raised and pressed against the glass. We are standing still on the shitty sidewalk two 13-year-old backlit shadows ourselves, staring at the window and the figure in the window when the person stiffens. It's the kind of vibration of a person's outline that tells you for sure that they have spotted you, are regarding you, reacting to you. They draw their hand back slowly and then, wham, smack the glass. Open-palmed, one hand, two hands, slamming and slapping the impenetrable surface. And then three hands, four hands, 11, 26, 43. Row by row, the grid of yellow squares begins to rumble and fill with shadow hands, banging, pounding, and raging against the icy boulevard. We Flintstone pedal up the boulevard until we reach a driveway with a sign propped up on a cement base. It reads, Baltimore Juvenile Detention Center. Looking back over my shoulder, I notice that the grid of banging shadow hands is topped by barbed wire, a spiral crown over the thick piss windows braced against the banging shadows of bad children. Teachers warn other teachers about bad children. The bad children sit sideways at their desk. They shave racing stripes in the side of their head and grow delicious red points at the ends of their fingers. The teacher stalks through the rows of square desks to loom over the bad children to fume and hiss and bait the bad children. The bad children is still crooked in their chair, avoiding eye contact until the teacher pounces, literally, rippling shoulders and spasming belly as they slam the contents of the bad children's desk out onto the floor. The bad children is on their knees, shuffling the papers and crawling after the pencil stubs, and it's at least another decade before I think the phrase, bad teacher. A bad children marked the phases of growing up. I saw the bad children at five in a peaked black polyester witch's hat, laughing sweetly next to a wood-burning stove. 
I saw the bad children at 15 stepping out of a smoke-filled station wagon, baby blue and a tray of cleavage under the same witch hat smile. I saw the bad children the day after her 18th birthday, lowering her chin and cocking her head at the managers of all the places in town with mirrored runways and poles wrapped in spirals of glitter tape. Lookers, dream girls, wild rose, cheaters, and one that was just called adult world. Weeks later, I pushed open the blacked out door of lookers and was offered a Snapple and a job. I turned my head and the bad children was squatting on the mirrored stage. There, beneath the first pussy I ever touched that wasn't my own, hovered a dollar bill and a beckoning finger. No thanks, I said. I'm just here to pick her up. But there were still two minutes left of the Portishead song the bad children had selected for her routine, and I had to wait amongst the gentlemen the club was for. Then a bad children taught me how to swing dance in a bar downtown that we were both too young to be in. He took me home to his mother's apartment, and she found us on the futon in the morning in a mess of feathers. Your dad is here, the bad children's mother accused. I'll put her on the bus, he replied. And then to me, have you ever ridden a public bus before? Yes, I lied. Not long after, the bad children shook with rage on the sidewalk, standing in a pool of shattered glass, nose to nose with the officer, and shouted at me to count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40, 41 shots in Amadou Diallo. Two bad children materialized behind me on a sunny street next to the university. I felt their heat on my back before I felt my hair yank and a rain of fists on my face. I recognized the bad children in her eyes and I insisted to her that it's okay. She heard me and paused before they ran off with my bag between them and my blood on their knuckles. I confess. I called the number. The bad children left a 10-frame residue on the liquor store CCTV. Hours later, when the cop collared them, I mean literally he held two trembling girls by their collars of their puffy jackets. I said, I don't press charges. But he said, it's not up to me because they are minors. Bad children are the domain of the state. In my sparse grad student kitchen, I flipped the phone open, and the bad children grinned up at me from the background. I squeezed the clumsy navigation to the photo album, and all of my shitty 1.3 megapixel images of gallery openings and fat babies had been nuked, and instead there is frame after frame of bad children. Bad children looking cross-eyed and duck-lipped into the foggy lens. Bad children locking foreheads and smiling, gap-toothed and making peace signs. Bad children showing their middle finger fuck yous paired with the best impression of mean eyes they can do. Bad children in a pink and yellow bedroom with a lamp shaped like Tweety Bird and canary colored walls. 
The pad children is a figure against this yellow ground in a perfectly square frame, one hand draw, drawn back to smash against the two and a half inch screen in my hand. Thank you. Thank you, Sunita. We're now going to welcome Amy Selman, who's going to speak about the work, and we're going to get some tech set up also. Whatever. Amy Selman. <laughs> Thank you. We're just going to. I made a. Um, I make po I make animations on my phone with poets, and I made one with Lisa Robertson. And it was a couple years, it was a few years ago, but um, I'm gonna show it to you. It's six minutes long. And um, while, while technical things are happening, just, we're just turning on my laptop. I just wanna thank, thank you so much for inviting me and allowing me to participate in this amazing thing where I actually cried um, since the election, which I haven't done. Uh, I really appreciate the um, feelings. Otherwise, thank you. Anyway, oh. A young woman looks openly out of the picture. A young woman looks openly out of the picture. Her experience of scale is always paradoxical. As for the unconscious, she is breathing in its Latin. Philosophy comes from her having difficulty. Her experience of scale is always paradoxical. When girls were flowers, this wasn't true. Her pronoun is sedition, unrecognized as such. The women is itself not a content. Her voice turns towards weakness and shame, and it pours down her face. When it comes to flowers, she is parody. How does she represent herself as thinking? So what if she is thick and stupid behind her life? It is not private. It can't be regulated. No, it is a survival, a learning to live. Knowledge is truth until it's ordinary. To super add girls speaking to humans is not a pleasure. No, it is a survival, a learning to live. Probably whatever the feminine might mean has to do with the intellectual relationship to change. None of the forms feel big enough. She imprecisely uses freedom. Part of her wanted nothing. She will be the pronoun of her analysis. Philosophy comes from her having difficulty. When women are exiled, it seems normal. Probably whatever the feminine might mean has to do with the intellectual relationship to change. She thinks she undoes her femininity to give herself pleasure. She brings this vocabulary into her mouth to sex it. 
The information of her fear is her most serious and fragile part. She doesn't have much time to understand her mortality. Her voice turns towards weakness and shame, and it pours down her face. She exploited a splitting at the level of process. Her pronoun is sedition, unrecognized as such. She feels free to set out in any discourse. She doesn't have much time to understand her mortality. She hasn't been human. She wants to tell about it, but not necessarily in language. She imprecisely uses freedom. She says space is doubt. She recycled the discarded part. She exploited a splitting at the level of process. She says space is doubt. Part of her wanted nothing. She smooths her hair. She recycled the discarded part. She spirals wildly away. She writes against herself. She taught herself to make distinctions. She writes against those who know how to read. She thinks she undoes her femininity to give herself pleasure. As for the unconscious, she is breathing in its Latin. She wants to tell about it, but not necessarily in language. None of the forms feel big enough. She will be the pronoun of her analysis. She smooths her hair. She writes against herself. She spirals wildly away. She writes against those who know how to read. She feels free to set out in any discourse. So what if she is thick and stupid behind her life? It is not private. She brings this vocabulary into her mouth to sex it. The information of her fear is her most serious and fragile part. Thus, she arrives at the idea of the mistake. The masterpiece of her mouth feels natural. The masterpiece of her mouth feels natural. The women is itself not a content. What the political will be to her cannot yet be quantified. This is a concept. She hasn't been human. Thus, she arrives at the idea of the mistake. This is a concept. To super-add girls speaking to humans is not a pleasure. It can't be regulated. What the political will be to her cannot yet be quantified. Knowledge is ordinary. When women are exiled, it seems normal. Thank you to all our readers, and thank you all for coming out. Uh, we have wine, 
we have a room that we're all together in, so I encourage you to stay, spend time here together. And um, please grab a newsletter on your way out. We have so many great events coming up this week. And the next Friday night uh, reading series is actually a talk um, with Helene Gawaka and Tara Hart. And it's going to be amazing. And that's on Friday, a week from today, November 18th. And it's all about queer archives. So thank you again to all our readers. Let's give them a warm round of applause. Have a good night. The Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org.